and welcome to episode 14 of Girls Gone Canon, Quentin Martell intro and The Merchant's Man. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. You can find me on the internet as at Lies and Arbor and on Tumblr as at Lies and Arbor. And I'm another one of your hosts for today, Eliana, also known as Glass Table Girl on the Mason Monthly podcast and of course on the Asago Vice and Fire subreddit. Hello, thank you again for coming to join us as we start a new journey, a new adventure. And joining us, joining us on that new adventure in this new point of view is, of course, we had to get him for this episode, you guys. We couldn't not get him. The one, the only poor Quentin, Emmett Booth. He just did an episode with Nauticast on Volantis not too long ago. And he is the author of the fabulous seven-part series on Quentin Martell, Men's Lives Have Meaning. You can find it on his blog at poorquentin.tumblr.com, and it's also linked below in the description. Hey, Amit, how are you? I'm doing great, guys. Thanks so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Yeah, we've been really excited to have you uh, become an official Girls Gone Canon. Welcome. I, I can't promise to match the performance of my uh, beloved co-host. Uh, I can't. I can't do Phil Collins quite as well, but I will aspire. I will reach for that star and <laughs> fail. Um, but yeah, I was especially looking forward to coming on to this because, as you can tell uh, from what I call myself, Quentin is one of my favorite characters, and I love how his story starts. So, uh, yeah, this is a chapter I really never tire of talking about. Awesome, and of course. Please let everyone know places they can find you, upcoming projects you have going on. Yeah, so I'm uh, at Port Quentin on Twitter. Uh, you can also find me at portquentin.tumblr.com. I'm on uh, the, the podcast Nauticast, A Song of Ice and Fire, which can be found at nauticastasoif, or you can find us our email at nauticastasoif at gmail.com. My co-host on that is Jeff Hartline, a.k.a. Brendan Beefish. You can find him at Brendan Beefish on Twitter. And uh, I covered uh, Game of Thrones Season 7 for Deadspin, and my stuff has popped up in Vice and Vulture and a couple other areas before. Definitely. And we will leave a lot of those links below in the description for you. Mm -hmm. little housekeeping before we can get started on Quentin, which we are so excited about. We wanted to make sure there's a little reminder about right now we're doing a giveaway for some bath products from Fire and Suds. That will be going for the next week. It will end on Friday the 17th. And of course, do not forget that our Patreon does go live on September 1st. You can pre-sign up right now. Uh, For $10 or more a month, you will also get a special edition, limited one-time offer, Belwas Deserve Better sticker, designed by Eliana. Yep, and of course, we are opening up these stickers for people to vote for. You can, uh, of course, vote for your favorites on Twitter. But the people who actually get a say, like, the people whose vote actually counts are the people who uh, are our patrons, the the Patreon subscribers, because that's who gets the stickers. And that's democracy, man. Pretty much. That's how it works. It's, uh, I guess we could call them, what are they? They're, what should we call it? Delegates. They registered, you know? If you want to have a vote, you gotta register to vote. No, that's how it is. So without further ado, we'll push into the Quentin introduction overview, just like we've done with the past couple POVs with Barristan and with Ned. We are just going to talk about some of Quentin's background, some of his life. Something I love about Quentin Martell's stuff is that 
And it's something that also poor Quentin talks about in his Men Lives Have Meeting uh, piece. Uh, we see his chapters much like Ned Stark's chapters. They immerse you. You pick up seeing the aftermath of things that have happened and after major battles. We don't get to see his journey fully up to this point, but Quentin flashes back to it as he picks up from it. Where we started Barristan by having a large round of catch-up to get used to the end of A Dance with Dragons, The Merchant's Man is the opposite problem. Quentin finds his plot introduced closer to the beginning of A Dance with Dragons, but it is spread out until the last second in Chapter 68, transitioning into a lens for us to see Marine. Absolutely. And you can, this is one of the characters where Martin's gardening style in general, and specifically the hell he went through trying to resolve the Miranese knot and get a dance with Dragon finished, really had an impact on the story. He said he wrote and rewrote Quentin's story in particular multiple times with specific attention paid to the timing of his arrival in Mirene. He, he's referred to it as the Miranese knot, his attempt to balance all these characters who are trying to get to Danny. So he wrote a version of the story where Quentin arrives well before Danny gets married to his dar. One version where he arrives well after it's already done, and then the third version, which he ended up going with for final publication, where Quentin shows up the day before uh, Danny gets married. And I think that works best. It's the most dramatic. Like Danny's on the verge of this big decision. She's already uh, feeling distraught about giving up Dario in her bed, uh, as would we all. And uh, so she's kind of forced into this corner to make these decisions among these three people right on the verge of it. So, uh, you know, I can, I can see where he had difficulties making this work, but I think he went with the best of options. So I have a question that I think, I don't know, maybe you two know the answer to. Do you know if, like, Quentin's chapters were written before or after the decision to split A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not entirely sure about it because this is one of the areas where the split does matter the most Mm -hmm. uh, and and makes the biggest difference in terms of what's included in the same book with other information given the offstage role Quentin plays in A Feast for Crows for Ariane. Um, yeah, I've, I've never heard anything about what his plans were for Quentin in the early stages. It's one of the characters he's talked least about in terms of his writing process, other than just that structural note I just mentioned, but not a lot about the history in terms of where he was writing it in the wake of A Storm of Swords. Yeah, so if any of you are going to Worldcon, which I believe is upcoming, like next week, this is a question we would like for you to ask George. Uh, ask him around when in his process did he decide to make Quentin a POV? Because, I, yeah, I mean, it has a lot of ramifications for the story in terms of structure. It hi- if it were the same book, you kind of lose that suspense and tension of like, but what is Quentin really doing? And it undercuts Arian, making her seem actually paranoid as opposed to justified in terms of her desire to become princess of dorne it would be like cutting away to stannis in the first book for no other reason than just to show him which would kind of ruin the mystery and the build-up of stannis as an offstage character in that first book what's he really up to he fled what's he's what's what's what are his plans same with like mance martin's really good at building up characters before introducing them i think yeah quentin's a good example of that for sure and of course house martell at the turn of the century we do have to give you background, we have Ariane Martel, who is the oldest sibling. Yeah, she's really the ultimate oldest sibling, man. Like, the, She's almost like Tywin in that regard, where it seems like she's just the, the source of such kind of charisma, but also feeling overlooked and dealing with her father, who seems weak and cowardly, which is also something Tywin was up against. Uh, and, and the Quentin's kind of like nervousness and shyness makes me feel like 
Jenna's comment about how Tywin's brothers all felt like they were in his shadow. Obviously, she's not cruel or sadistic or domineering in the way that Tywin is, but same kind of sense of ultimate oldest sibling, I think. And it's kind of funny because sometimes people feel like they're in the shadows of their older siblings, but for Arianne, it's absolutely the difference because Arianne fixates so much on Quentin in her chapters. Like, Quentin is such a looming presence throughout her story, whereas Quentin thinks of Arianne like once in his entire storyline and he doesn't think about her name. He's just like, and his sister. That's it. But they, both the kids are very motivated to meet their father's expectations, so. And of course, as Ariane is the ultimate older sibling, Quentin Martell is the ultimate middle child, forever a middle child. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely that kind of like scrunching down into his neck like a turtle sense you get from Quentin Aww. that he's just like automatically assuming that everything is, is going to start to go wrong, even as he's trying to convince himself otherwise. And yeah, he does feel a lot like the other middle sons in the books. Uh, Ned is an obvious example. When Quentin thinks of the line someone told him, a girl told him, it, it's a good, you have a good, honest face, but you should smile more. That sounds very much like Ned, like how Catelyn described Ned when she first met him. It's like this overly solemn face, less, less pretty version of his brother Brandon. Um, you know, found the good heart beating underneath eventually, but like that first reaction seems pointedly similar in description from Martin. Alright, a thought. Now this other character is a first son, but he's treated after a while kind of like a middle child because he's kind of a black sheep of his family. But again, going back to how like Feast and Dance were once one book, maybe should we be viewing viewing, uh, Quentin through the lens of Sam Tarly's journey? Like, there are ships, there's awful adventures, there's maesters dying, and all this like feeling of maybe you're not really the hero of the story but we must keep paddling on as some people like to say and <laughs> the catch with all of that of course is like in storm i mean yeah we've been to sam since like a game of thrones but you know sam is shown to be kind of a hero he does some pretty like very hero story like things so we're primed to think like oh maybe it's maybe it's gonna work out for quentin when you first see him you're like oh there's this guy i guess it's like an underdog success story or like you you think maybe it's gonna be an underdog success story at first the way sam's was uh, but then everything keeps getting worse and there's never the triumphant moment like chloe was saying like the way it's structured where his chapters keep opening up after something terrible has happened the merchant's man opens up right after his best friend gets killed and the wind blown opens up right after the sack of astapor so the focus is less on the thing itself and more on why he's still going like that's what each chapter ends up being about is him wondering to himself okay is this enough to stop is this enough to give up and it the answer is always no for a variety of reasons and uh that's something that sam deals with a lot in storm like his, his pov opens in storm with him sobbing and taking another step and deciding he can't go on and in feast he almost can't go on so i think there's yeah there's that question in common of why you're on the journey and if you can make the journey happen and i I think that's something interesting when you have characters who are trying to be a hero, but dealing with almost like mundane logistics and, and seeing if they can rise above those. Yeah. And something's obviously that's been mentioned is they do have the hero story. They are going on to be the hero, but obviously different 
alterations of that story, just like with Old Nan saying the last hero story to Bran Stark. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially with Quentin, one by one, his friends died, his companions mm-hmm. died. And we'll definitely mm-hmm. dive into this mm-hmm. more, especially in the Dragon Tamer, because there's this great line about the hero's journey Quentin thinks about, but... Yeah, I think that's a perfect comparison to, like, in it to the hero's journey, uh, not hero's journey, the the last hero's story, also the hero's journey, but like the fire version if like the last year's version was the ice version of that story quentin's going to a wasteland where there's fires everywhere and the pyramids are set on fire and he reaches out to the dragons instead of the children and um ends up getting ends up getting burned for it it's like a, it's like a version of the last hero where the ending is just they die and there's no moral which i imagine is a story old man would enjoy telling to bran hmm. the story of the boy who died and there was no point and of course, he has kind of become his sigil in the end. You know, I mean, he goes mm-hmm. l- oh. looking to, you know, he goes looking to play with fire, and he becomes his own sigil at the very end. Yeah, the spear flies too close to the sun. Absolutely, all those all those last hero stories have some kind of spin on it. Like Sam's not questing; he's actually just in a horrible retreat. Uh, even in the uh, earlier chapters in Dance, like, Varamir has a version of the last hero story, but the twist is he's the worst person ever. <laughs> so ever. you can see Martin kind of playing with his own arc whenever he brings this up again. For sure. And then we got another Martel who, like, are you a hero? What's your story? Who are you? Named Tristane. <laughs> he gonna die, too. They're all gonna die. It's a shame. Doom little kid. Yeah, I wish we have. I wish we had anything from that kid. But I, the only time we see him, I think, is him playing uh, Savas with Marcella, and even then, it's a flashback, if I recall correctly. I might be wrong about that. Yeah, I think if anything, I think it was Ario was talking about them. I want to say about watching yeah. them yeah, play. Yeah, I think uh, he's yeah. mentioned a bunch, of course, because Cersei makes a dumb plan, even by Cersei standards, to kill him. But we don't. We haven't actually had any plot or character stuff with him, so. I hope we do before he dies, because otherwise it's just going to feel kind of empty, as yeah. it did in the show, when he was just stabbed for no reason. <laughs> Wait, you're saying they had the Martells in the show? The what? I, this must clearly be a fever dream brought on by excess of Philly cheesesteaks. Mmm, Philly cheesesteaks. <laughs> Quentin was fostered at House Ironwood to actually repair the relationship after Oberyn and Edgar Ironwood had a duel which was kind of a blood debt and a little bit of a stain on the Martell honor because Edgar did kind of uh, dive mostly from poison, they kind of speculate, which we've never seen that happen from over and Never ever. seen it in my life. That does not fit his MO yeah. at all. <laughs> Who would do such a thing? So, of course, in House Ironwood, we have several different members to get to, but the first is Cletus. Which is an amazing name. Just throwing that out there. I do love in the middle of these like vaguely exotic sounding Dornish names are supposed to capture like, you know, Mediterranean languages <laughs> and, and but then you have like Cletus and Edgar. Edgar who yeah. sound like they're they're just squinting at you from a porch in Kentucky. It's just a we- it's just a weird little mix, and which 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 is which is perfectly fine. I just think of Cletus as the, the redneck from the Simpsons, because that's the way I was raised, aka right. Oh. So that's just that's just a shortage. I, 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 I picture Cletus from with his horrible accent whispering, give your bride a kiss for me, and it ruins the story forever. 
<laughs> yeah, I can kind of see that now. I think you might have just ruined this for me. Thanks. Yeah, I thought Cletus was a perfectly fine name. I tried. Until now. I was just like, oh, what a fun name. I was like, Edgar's like really pulling me out of the story. Archibald a little too. Edgar and Archibald. Like, what is this? Yeah, where do they get these names? Yeah, Archibald is a whole other thing. That sounds like he's a foppish British lord from like a mid-level Monty Python sketch. That's out of nowhere. (laughs) But uh, yeah, Cletus Ironwood, who is described by Quentin as always randy and always laughing. And in the couple flashback scenes he gets, he's always like joking about sex and slapping back. So he's clearly like, if Quentin is Ned, then uh, Cletus is either the Robert, arguably, or maybe even more so the Brandon, because he, he dies unexpectedly right at the beginning of everything that gets going, just like Brandon did. Um, so you can see Martin kind of playing with that same kind of dynamic where our protagonist, there's that great Ned speech where he says that everything about this was meant for Brandon, and I never asked for this cup to pass for me. And Quentin similarly says in this chapter that he never asked for this. And that, well, of course, this was always his quest and never Cletus's. You get the sense that Cletus is like drink kind of more superficially at least cut out for this sort of thing or more self-possessed in a way that would work and quentin is plagued by this self-doubt that he doesn't fit that role oh yeah absolutely and like and he feels that this whole entire time he is surrounded by these friends that he just feels like are way more capable of all of this than he is and except for jarius who's the worst we're we're gonna get to we're gonna get to that i hate jarius so that who doesn't that brings us to Archibald. Archibald's pretty chill. Who I love. He's adorable. I love Archibald. If Cletus is his Brandon, Archibald would be his Robert. He even wields a hammer and he vaguely threatens to kill Kang Harzu with a tap of it at one point. Of course, an interesting line that we get from Barristan on these young knights from the Queen's Hand is, The Dornish men were knights, at least in name, though only Ironwood impressed him as having the true steel. Drinkwater had a pretty face, a glib tongue, and a fine head of hair. So I love that emphasis on the true steel. Oh, yeah. Me too, yeah. Especially as someone who's really into the Baratheon brothers as characters, that's a very clearly uh, deliberate double callback to how Donal Noy uh, talked about the Baratheon brothers. Mm -hmm. The true steel is the way he talked about Robert, of course. And the way he describes Drink is very similar to how he and other characters have described Renly. Uh, as, as being a pretty face, a glib tongue, and a fine head of hair. That's almost identical to how Olena talked about Renly, as being, you know, he knew how to bathe and knew how to dress, and somehow he got in his head that this made him fit to be king. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's a great contrast. And, I, yeah, I like that uh, Arch, who has this sweet little moment when Quentin dies of beating out the flames with his bare hands and, like, holding his burned corpse and, like, sobbing over him when they find him. Um, Wait, he dies? And then, yeah... No, 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 he's coming back. That was a fake. No, no, no. They're all lying. That's so much more emotionally satisfying. Uh, So you're telling me he dies. That's a story. So I'm telling you he dies. So you're saying there's a chance. God. We just invited, we invited Emmett on this so we could just make him mad. (laughs) That's... A fun, if easy, task. <laughs> but I do think that's a great catch of finding that line of the true steel as a comparison. This, of course, brings us on to Jairus Drinkwater, everyone's least favorite fuckboy. He is a fuckboy. Like, definition, fuckboy. Like, his picture is there in the dictionary right next to it. 
Also, I thought it was really interesting. There's this line later on from when he meets Daenerys, and his real name is Gerald. Yeah, so it says, Handsome young Gerald bowed, Sir Garrus Drinkwater, your grace, my sword is yours. So Jarrus is short for Gerald? Really? So he's he's mini Darkstar. Like, Darkstar wasn't pathetic enough on his own. Yeah. You gotta yeah. have a mini Darkstar. He's the Darkstar of Quentin's plot. Pretty much. When I think Gerald, I think of Gerald from Hey Arnold, who was the best. And who was the was, best? He was an absolute, absolute precious cinnamon bun. And this man does not deserve to be named Gerald. Okay. This is this is a perfectly fair point. We're getting all these characters from TV shows. The Simpsons and Hey I Arnold are just, are just messing with Quentin's quest the entire time. Um... Let's talk more about the 90s cartoons. I also like, I love that his last name is Drinkwater. You know, like a drink of water. <laughs> I know. Like, really, George? Like a tall really? drink of water. Yeah, God. Some old woman talk like, oh, there's a tall drink of water over there. Quentin's Quest feels like um, an, an RPG in a lot of ways. Like he's got his little oh, yeah. quest together and they're all like little chibis on the screen going off on the map. And and Drink is absolutely like a mid '90s Final Fantasy supporting character, with like the slanty haircut and like you know always like doing th- like putting his fists on his hips and moving around on the screen saying brash things. Uh, he's completely recognizable and completely obnoxious, but works works well because Martin intends him clearly to be as obnoxious as possible. He's probably a bard. <laughs> He is, oh god, he is a bard. And not even a cool one like Mance. Yeah. No, a lame no, no. one like all the other ones. Or like Darien. You know, at least. Yeah. Oh, true. That's a good comparison, yeah. Oh, Darien, yeah. also also the worst. Anyway, so William Wells. Tell, tell me about William Wells. I actually don't know much about him other than like, that's a name. <laughs> that's a name. Well, it's kind of interesting because so he's one of the ones that they lost. And there's there's a house Wells in the north as well. Uh, so there's a northern and southern one, which in the RPG, uh, the role-playing fantasy game, there's info more on the northern wells. But it kind of reminds me of Ned's trip to the Tower of Joy and taking a handful of Dornish friends with him instead, hmm. almost on his journey. Like, Song of Ice and Fire yeah, is really great. just repetition, to be fair. But the northern wells, you do get a peek at in Cersei's plot. Theoden Wells is actually the head of the warrior sons, and he's who takes Cersei to Marjorie when she requests to go visit her when she's uh, being contained. So he's of the Northern Wells houses, and Hmm. it's a completely different house. I thought that was very interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, I like the comparison to the Tower of Joy scene. I mean, Quentin's quest ends in a bed of blood in the same way, and he even finds a a Kingsguard who tries to stop him and warn him, you know, Barristan as opposed to the the three at the Tower of Joy. So yeah, there's definitely a lot of connections there. Oh, yeah, it really continues this whole Ned parallel and King's Landing parallel we've been talking, which, of course, George is doing what works because the politics and the drama and intrigues of King's Landing are what grips us in the very first place. So why not repeat them in another plot? Mm-hmm. Exactly. His, his Wheel of Time stuff. He does love that. Quentin is knighted at the age of 18, and he actually turned down Oberyn's offer to knight him, but accepted Lord Anders Ironwood's. Yeah, that's so telling. We don't get much about Quentin's childhood, but that's a really telling detail because that's quite a snub, especially from someone as in the family as impressive and intimidating as Oberyn. It's a big deal to be, be knighted by that guy. 
And it's, it's a, kind of a statement on Quentin's part that gets at the division Ariane thinks about in one of her released Winds chapters, where she's thinking about how, given that Quentin was only at Ironwood because of a blood debt Oberyn was paying, there was this kind of instant division between Quentin and the Sand Snakes, which I imagine was only exacerbated when Quentin turned down being knighted at Oberyn's hands. And Ariane makes it clear she chose the Sand Snakes, in part because of, I mean, geography. They were the ones who were there. Quentin was being sent halfway across Dorne but also because, as we know, she's always been really close to them, Tyene especially. So right away you get this sense of this sibling, not even a rivalry, because as Eliana said, Quentin doesn't even really think about Ariane. They're not interacting with each other, but a sibling, a gap, a kind of alienation from each other, which ends up having really negative consequences uh, for both of them. It kind of reminds me, too, that it's looked at as kind of a slight on Oberyn by Ariane and the snakes, but at the same time... It would be looked on as a bigger slight if he had, you know, if he had the offer from both and he chose to go with Oberyn because he was sent to heal that blood debt. So in a way, it's kind of yet again another thing Arian doesn't really understand the all of it, you know, kind of a thing she does. Uh, and of course, it brings the very strong the brother he chose vibe with Cletus and Arch and Lord Anders, much like Ned with Robert and John Aaron. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. That's a, that's an excellent point. And I'm also kind of surprised, I never really paid much attention to it, that Oberyn, I guess, was a knight. Because you never hear anyone say Sir Oberyn. True, good point. I don't think about Oberyn as a knight ever. Yeah. Um, but he, he seems to have collected uh, every possible title and lifestyle he can along the way, so I'm sure it was just... A passing fancy. Quentin was able to be knighted because turns out he was trained with spear and sword since he could walk, and he actually has been riding horses since he was six. Yeah, I thought that was a very interesting little fact they snuck on in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is the way he's different from Sam, for example. Like, he's not, he doesn't have a complete ineptitude for an unwillingness to take part in the the fighting realm, which kind of is ultimately ends up being a problem, because I'm sure if Quent wasn't able to do that, he might not convince himself he could tame a dragon, so that kind of sets him up to fail, almost, that, that he has just enough of the right resume to screw himself over. And of course, growing up with the Ironwoods, he grew up with several of the daughters of House Ironwood. And uh, developed a crush on one of them, the oldest one, which is uh, a unexpected kind of parallel with Littlefinger in that regard, that it's not quite the same, of course, in that the reason it became such a, uh, a fuss at River Run is because Peter Baelish was setting his heights so high despite being the, the son of the smallest of the small lords, whereas Quentin is the son of the overlord of House Ironwood, so that relationship isn't quite the same. But there is that same dynamic of the, the foster son developing a crush on the lord's daughter. Yeah, and I mean, Ironwood, House Ironwood, as Cletus shows, would be p- totally fine, I guess, with him having a dalliance with one of the Ironwood daughters. But also, another parallel, of course, is that it seems that Quentin maybe takes a fancy-ish to the 12-year-old? That's like a little finger thing to have happen to you. Yeah, I don't know if it's, like, as creepy as Littlefinger is, you know? I mean, 
it's pretty, I mean, some of the thoughts are borderline, but it works a bit with the parallel. In a way, his want for Gwyneth Ironwood is sad, but bittersweet. It's not really a want. It's more like the, the quote that comes up is, more recently, the youngest of Lord Ironwood's daughters had taken to following him about the, ha- the castle. Gwyneth was but 12, a small, scrawny girl whose dark eyes and brown hair set her apart in that house of blue-eyed blondes. She was clever, though, as quick with words as with her hands, and fond of telling Quentin that he had to wait for her to flower so she could marry him. Which is, which is cute. And I, she seems like almost like a mix of Arya and Sansa. Mm-hmm. In a way, like she's got like the Arya looks and the practicality, but her dreams seem like Sansa-ish. Um, I agree. It's, it's definitely weird to have Quentin think to himself, yeah, I'll probably marry that 12-year-old. That's weird. But it's not said with like the same kind of creepiness and desire as Littlefinger. It almost seems like a pragmatic assessment of what's probably going to happen. Like, oh, she's following me around. I'm staying in the house. In a few years, she'll flower. That's, that's probably going to be the thing. Um, definitely still... Definitely still definitely still clangs off the ear, but uh, yeah, I agree with Chloe. It's not, I don't think it's meant as disqualifyingly creepy as it is with Littlefinger. Well, that's him being like, that's him being like the Robert, though, in this situation, right? He's like, oh, I'm going to marry one of these Ironwood girls, and I'm going to be an Ironwood now. Yeah, absolutely. It's Robert with Liana syndrome. Mm-hmm. Stark it mm-hmm. up. Yep. He literally thinks that, I mean, especially through the chapter, some of just the internal thoughts, uh, that's his family, that's how it's become. So it's very much so like that, very much so. Well, I think it also, all of that has to be, all of that has to be filtered through Cletus just died. So I'm sure he's thinking like kind of more differently in a more desperate attached fashion to the family than maybe he generally does because he's seeing that attachment tested and worn down and kind of ripped away from him to a certain extent so yeah i think he's definitely ironwood becomes like this oasis in his mind as he goes forward is like the place he wants to return to is the place everything's going to be all right is it's a you know a locus of innocence for him in a way that nothing else really is that's his red door it is exactly it's his it's his snow castle of winterfell basically mm-hmm. it's home also it's home yep. you know we could ask him how he feels about it but He's dead. But is he? Is he? Is he? Was he? Why is Gamora? <laughs> I'll let you guys think on that one, but let's get ahead Just and start. chew on that, folks. Chew on that one. Oh my god. Uh, it sounds tender. Maybe crispy. I don't know. It depends on how long he left the Syrian on. Um, and now we need a food break. <laughs> oh god, it does sound good. Mm, crackly just skin. Anyways, uh, <laughs> the long pig, as they call Pork us. Pork went in. So we will move on to our what we missed, our lightning round. Eliana, kick us off. All right. So we got the prologue, as you all know, and dance opens in the actual true hour of the wolf, where Vermeer has skin changed into the body of a wolf, and he leads a small pack on a hunt, killing free folk deserters. He thinks back on killing his little brother in his youth while in his father's dogs, and then his skin-changing training through Hagon and the many abominations he's committed. He tries to slip into his companion, never do that, Thistle's skin as he lays dying, and she escapes his control, only to return with icy blue eyes and blood frozen clinging to her skin. 
In Tyrion 1, Tyrion finds himself lodged in a ship's cabin, making his way across the narrow sea. He's drunk. He's pretty messed up. He just killed his dad. He's crying about Taisha. You know, the usual. He threatens a sex worker. There's a mushroom metaphor. He matches wits with Illyrio. And then he finds out Illyrio's plan. A dragon with three heads. Not Seto Kaiba. <laughs> in Daenerys 1, her role in the cities of Slaver's Bay is ever a challenge, and she is presented with two corpses, the second more troubling than the first. Stalwart Shield is murdered by the Sons of the Harpy, and a sack of burnt bones is upended in the throne room. The bones of a child. <laughs> in John 1... John dreams through ghost's eyes below the wall, hunting in the woods, and even feels the presence of his siblings' wolves around him. Awakened by Jair's raven, John finds himself treating and giving counsel to King Stannis, who is milking the Night's Watch lands for all they are worth. Melisandre follows John, warning him of his foes and telling him he knows nothing. What a nice chick. Something about those redheads. I know, right? Mm. In Bran 1, exhausted and drained, Bran, Mira, Jojen, Hodor, and Coldhands, and Summer, make it to the Three-Eyed Crow's cave. In Tyrion 2, smuggled out of Pentos by Illyrio, Tyrion makes his way to the Roin, and Illyrio begins to unfold his plans for Daenerys and Young Griff. Tyrion recounts the story of Hugor of the Hill, and tells Illyrio that he wanted to be the High Septon before he met Tysha, which is a detail I always forget about. Same. Yeah, I did not remember that until you put together this summary. He's uh, not very holy, you know. But, you know, that's what happens. You have your rebellious phase after ha- you have your, like, really uh, hardcore young Christian phase. Yeah, I absolutely. Guess. Like you, you graduate from catechism once, you know? Yeah, you go to your youth camp, and then you're like, oh, no. Um, and that, of course, brings us to The Merchant's Man, where, disguised as a wine cellar's servant, Quentin Martell continues his journey to a beautiful dragon queen in Mirin. Adventure! Oh, wait. Bum, ba bum, bum, ba dum. Yummy, meow, meow. <laughs> Adventure Stink. Quentin Martell is in Volantis looking at a small ship with 60 oars called the Adventure. This stink was piss and rotting meat and night soil. This was the reek of corpse flesh and weeping sores and wounds gone bad, so strong that it overwhelmed the salt air and fish smell of the harbor. What an opening line. Adventure stink. The same could be said by the end of his chapters, I'm sure. It's so subtle. What could the author possibly be signifying there, really? Uh, that the ship smells bad? <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's all. No metaphors. No, none. It's, it's, it's the ship of no metaphors. Jiris Drinkwater and Cletus and Archibald Ironwood are among Quentin's OG companions. And... Quentin is also like, but what if we, what about a different ship that's not adventure? When the master of adventure appears with two crewmen at his side. Strong, vile looking men. Yeah, they are not seemly. (laughs) And then in Plankytown, we learn about Plankytown, which has the greatest name. I, it makes me think of Donkey Kong. Uh, Quentin was 
the wine merchant. He was playing the role of the wine merchant. But apparently that was less believable in disguise. So they changed roles back and lease lies on the Meadowlark. Yeah, Cletus became the merchant and Quentin became the servant. And Cleus, of course, is slain in Volantis and Garrus, Jairus, can't even say his name, and Jairus becomes the merchant. Which, dude, poor fucking Quentin, dude. He doesn't even get to be the boss, like, in his own scheme. His lackeys have to play the boss, and he has to play the lackeys. I He needs to believe in Can- himself. Exactly, because he knows deep down he is, he is a lackey. Like, he hates, he says he hates lying, which is definitely part of it, but also, like, he just, he flinches from being in charge, because at some level he feels like he doesn't belong there, he doesn't deserve to be. So, yeah, he's, he's consigned himself to play the role of a servant eternally. Yeah. And, of course, his friends, as we mentioned, do have a little more charisma than he does, especially Jairus Drinkwater. Who I guess is a beb. He's He's a beb. He's a beb. He's tall and fair with blue-green eyes and sandy hair streaked by the sun and a lean and comely body, I guess. Jairus Drinkwater had a swagger to him, a confidence bordering on arrogance for sure. He never seemed ill at Mm. ease, and even when he did not speak the language, he had ways of making himself understood. Quentin cut a poor figure by comparison, short-legged and stocky, thickly built... Thick. Thick. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> With hair the brown of new turned earth. His forehead was too high, his jaw too square, his nose too broad. A good honest face, a girl had called it once, but you should smile more. Smiles never come easily for Quentin Martel any more than they did for his lord father. As we mentioned during Barristan, yes, Jairus is a total babe, but he's a total fuckboy and woman should just stay away from him. Also, he was totally a dick to Barristan about Danny, and he's totally the kind of guy that would send you a dick pic unsolicited. Absolutely. It's more like Jairus dick water, am I right? Oh my god, no, you're not. You're not. Hey-o. Right. This is what we like to call Incorrect. garbage. Non-canonical. <laughs> But yeah, I do love the uh, line about Quentin not being able to smile, which is uh, feels like a direct comparison to Stannis, who's introduced by Crescent as having completely forgotten how to smile, and always standing in Robert's shadow, the same way Quentin is always standing in Drink's shadow. So again, like like Stannis in that it's the classic false protagonist thing. Like the story sets them up as potentially being a main character, but they know at some level that they're not. Jairus uses his not-so-smooth Valyrian to ask how fast the adventure is. How swift is your adventure, Jairus said in a halting approximation of High Valyrian. The adventure's master recognized the accent and responded in common tongue of Westeros. There is none swifter, honored lord. Adventure can run down the wind itself. Tell me where you wish to sail, and swiftly I shall bring you there. Which is like, ayy! How swift is your adventure? There is none swifter! Not so swift, it turns out. Not so swift at the time, but by the end of the book, it's pretty fast. It ends pretty swiftly when it comes to it, yes indeed. Hashtag meta. <laughs> the master recognizes Juris' Westerosi accent and responds to him in the common tongue. Adventure is swift and can run down the wind. Which, I don't know, this is a Fun thing that I've been playing around with. Jairus drink water as the wine cellar. It's turning water into wine. Okay, that's the one, ah, that's the one thing that's, that I have. That's good. 
Clever. I, I liked it. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Applause, applause. Jerstan informs him that they wish to travel to Mirene, and the captain gives pause to that, informing them that there's, like, no reason- no one should be going to Marine. There's- you're not gonna get any slaves out of it, you're not gonna make any profit out of it, and there's not even, like, fighting pits, because the Silver Queen was like, no, we don't do that anymore. Which, like, overall- Marine sounds like a great place, besides the whole, right now it's currently a hellscape where we leave off with Barry, you know, like it's literally just, you know, a waking inferno. But otherwise, it sounds like a great place. Mm-hmm. Other than the war and the plague and stuff, it sounds pretty nice. Right. At least there's no slavery. Yeah, that's true. True. Quote unquote. There's cool <laughs> animals. There's a pale mare and some dragons, I hear. And we love mares. <laughs> we do like horses. True. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me, my Westerosi friend, what is there in Marine that you should want to go there? The most beautiful woman in the world, thought Quentin, my bride-to-be if the gods are good. Sometimes at night he lay awake imagining her face and form and wondering why such a woman would ever want to marry him of all the princes in the world. I am Dorn, he told himself. She will want Dorn. The gods are never good. They are not good. They're not. It's the Lysen Arbor of the. It's the other Lysen Arbor, you know. Every time they yeah, see the it. Yeah, the other other. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that is one way Quint's different from Victorian, though, because Victorian spends his whole time telling himself, "Of course she'll want me. Just look at me. Who wouldn't want me? I'm Victorian." Uh, whereas with Quint telling himself the whole time, "Yeah, I wouldn't want me either. I look at me. I wouldn't fuck me. I wouldn't fuck me." Poor Quentin. Oh, that's sad. <laughs> that's such a sad thing to say. I, he's, I think he's being too hard on himself. We'll get to that. But I think he's being too hard on himself. He's just fine. He might... When he when he comes for Danny, it might just be the worst possible timing. I think yeah. he's a little too hard on himself, too. Yeah, it's just there's no reason to roast yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Exactly. The world, the world will do that for you. The dragons will do that for exactly. you. Exactly. Jairus gives the captain the story that they've created. He is a wine merchant in Dorne, and his family has extensive vineyards, and they're looking for a new market in Marine. This is the cutest story, I guess. And the captain finds this ridiculous because, I mean, all the cities are, like, at war out here, and it's not the time. Like, no one wants your shitty Dornish red. I do, but, like, everyone else, I guess, doesn't, so just come over here and give them to me. I'm pretty sure all you have to do is find Sandor during war, and you got all the wine customer you could possibly That's need. True. Don't they need wine more during the war? You got to get drunk to distract yourself from the fact that there is a war. Yeah, much better economy in King's Landing for that stuff. There actually is. Sell them all to exactly. Cersei. Of course, uh, the way that the captain calls their wine "shitty Dornish red" says a lot. Uh, it opens up a whole another bushel of how, even in the free cities, there is racism against Dornish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that they've just been sent into this unfamiliar foreign environment, which really reflects poorly on Duran's planning here, that obviously Duran could not have predicted that half their companions would die, but he could very easily have predicted that it would be difficult to actually get to Slaver's Bay, given the, the stirrings of war. So there should have been some kind of mechanism there that Quentin didn't have to join a sellsword company just to get that far. Yeah, it's kind of a suicide mission. Kind of literally, as it turns out. <laughs> That's assisted suicide. 
sad. It's dragon, dragon-assisted suicide. A dragon in like a little lab coat with glasses talking to you about your life oh, decisions. Oh, I am thinking that actually turns out. <laughs> I like the glasses. Dr. Kevorkian, but a dragon. My new short story. Oh, I can't Hello, wait. Dr. Please write me into that. <laughs> I don't think you want to be written into the story about dragon-assisted suicide, but I'll workshop it. You say that, but you must not know me. I do. Apparently not. Apparently not. This is a fanfic now. While Garrus smooth talks his way convincingly over this, we learn Volantis is hiring new swords. The long lances are already on their way to Yunkai, and the Windblown and Company of the Cat are filling their ranks to join. The Golden Company is also marching east. Fake news. Dead men do not care what kind of wine they drink. Haha, ha, we get it. He's gonna die. But like, also same. Cause he's gonna die. <gasps> a lot of Quentin's story is like that. Martin just saying things and then like ellipsis and then he goes, cause he's gonna die. Do you get it? I think it? that would make the story better, honestly, at this point. I think he should do it. I think if there was a possible thing of a George R. R. Martin commentary track, which I don't know how that would exist, but if you could just have, somehow have him as a commentary track on his books, that would be him during the every Quent chapter. Just interjecting going, because he's going to die and nothing else. That would be amazing. Someone should Someday. Like when Quentin's describing the fires in Astapor, George Martin goes, because he's going <laughs> to burn to death. When, when George finally loses all patience with us, we'll have him do that. Sounds good. Quentin told his friends that they would only be waiting three days, and now they have waited 20, a mood. Waiting. (laughs) Mood. We all been waiting at the Atlanta airport for 20 days when we thought it was only going to be three. That's not what I was saying. Uh, They've been refused by several ships. Melantine, Triarch's (laughs) Daughter, The Mermaid's Kiss. I kind of think some of these names are really interesting and they almost foreshadow his failures to come because he's refused at first by the Triarch's Daughter and The Mermaid's Kiss. And then he is refused by the Dragon Mm -hmm. Queen too. Yeah, so he was refused by... Yeah, it's just endless rejection. The Triax daughter and refused by Lord Manderley. I see. I see what's going on here. Exactly, exactly. Three treasons, Quentin shall know. (laughs) The Dolphin's master also berates them for wasting his time, and a member of the Bold Voyager laughs in his face. The captain of the Fawn says, Why should I seek out more danger by turning into Slaver's Bay? The Fawn is my livelihood. I will not risk her to take three mad Dornishmen to the middle of war. It's almost like a war zone is no place for a fun fantasy quest, guys. It's almost like this was a terrible idea. And you should go Who home Who chose now. this? <laughs> oh. Who did this? Doran. <laughs> Exactly. It's like the Eric Andre bid. Dorn Martell shoots someone and looks to the camera and says, why would Tywin Lannister do this? Ah, why would Daenerys Targaryen kill Quentin? Oh, <laughs> so yeah, that's drink. Damn. That is, of course, that is drink at the end. That is what they're going to spin it as. Damn. I mean, duh. It- All those kids. And that brings us into a great quote from the chapter. Quentin had begun to think that they might have done better to buy their own ship in Planky Town. That would have drawn unwanted attention, however... The spider had informers everywhere, even in the halls of Sunspear. Dorn will bleed if your purpose is discovered, his father had warned him, as they watched the children frolic in the pools and fountains of the water gardens. What we do is treason, make no mistake. Trust only your companions and do your best to avoid attracting notice. 
They're gonna die, and so are all the kids in those pools. Yeah, they really are. I think com- that combined with what you were saying about the the fawn, like, you're really just getting a picture of what it's gonna be like in the winds of winter. There's economic downfall on top of, like, oh, it's winter, and just war in general. Like, everything's gonna go to shit. Yeah, and you can see Quentin's kind of motivations being established here. That one of the reasons he doesn't turn back is uh, because he has this the whole weight of Dorne on his shoulders now. That if he fails, he's let down not just his dad but his entire country. And he's been led to believe that he's. I mean, like uh, Duran says to Ariane that those children are their responsibility as well as his. That that's what it means to be part of House Martell. And that so Quentin has to keep going, which will of course ironically lead him to murder a bunch of children in his next chapter. So yay. Ah, yay. 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 Jairus Drinkwater charms the captain of the adventure. He offers him three times what normal fare would be. And it's so easy to get dudes to do stuff. Like, he literally was like, I hear you're brave, captain. You want to give us a ride to Hell Zone? And he's like, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. And I'm like, it's really that easy. It's that easy to manipulate him, really, Jairus? So Quentin thinks that the cabin, the captain is probably just going to slit their throats when they're on board and take all their money, which I understand that paranoia. I do. Yeah, at that when you're offering three times the ferry, well, you're just you're just holding up a sign that says, "Please rob me, please rob me, and dump yeah. my corpse overboard." At that point. And again, in like foreign travel, they obviously did not Google before they went like what it's like there. They don't know how to haggle at all either. It's like so rough because you can't. Yeah, I know, right? Because they're already running around with that dead giveaway. Like, oh, I'm a merchant. I'm running around with all of these goods and wares. Oh, I have a foreign accent. Like, what are you doing? This is not how anyone travels unless, yeah, you want to get robbed. I mean, not to like victim blame them, but like, come on, dude. Exactly. They're running around with, like, fake mustaches, mm-hmm. like, you know, asking where, where, where they can find, like, local uh, haberdasheries. They're just, like, the worst intelligence agents imaginable. Um, oh and, yeah, that's in part because they lost the smart ones. They lost Maester Kedri and they lost Cletus. Uh, uh, and there's this great little moment when Drink is going on and on about how he doesn't know anything about Philantis. And Quentin gives him, like, this entire list about how the, how the city works. And he says, you would know all this if you read the books that Maester Kedri left you, which is just basically his equivalent of whenever Hermione says, honestly, Ron, when are you going to read Hogwarts a history? <laughs> uh, and Ron and Harry just say, never, we don't have to. You read the whole damn thing. Uh, so I like that. It's a nice little moment of nerd pedantry from Quentin. You can get, get this. Because, you know, one criticism to make of Quentin's chapters is he's so shell-shocked right from the beginning. You don't get much of a sense of who he was before his life was meaningless in hell. So it's nice to get little glimpses of what he's actually like in terms of his personality when he's not just staring into space wishing he was dead. Yeah, he's got crushes. He's got books. He had a life. (laughs) He did. It's something. It's, again, similar to Sam, where he just wants to be left alone with his books and people keep making him do stuff. I agree. It's all I want. (laughs) Hashtag relatable. I mean, same... (laughs) Same, dude. They return to their inn in a hefe, uh, led by 
an elephant, which Hathays are somewhat like Westerosi ox carts. However, the one they ride in was extremely intricate and decked out, like MTV gonna pimp your Hathay. Uh, they use it because it draws less attention to them, and it keeps their cover story looking right. It, they're led by a dwarf elephant also, and that this time we don't have an ox, we don't have horses, we have an elephant. A small elephant, okay? An adorable tiny yes. elephant. I want 12. I want- <laughs> you can't even- no, you, you can't have them. Okay, well, I really want to know what the you can't even was going to be. Is it you can't even take care of one tiny elephant, I mean, let alone 12? That is pretty much what I was going to say, yes. Okay, that's entirely accurate. Well, fact, you can't on. even take care of one Emmet. How are you going to take care of an elephant? An Elemetfint? An Emmetfint? Okay, this Emmetfint! Is... I was trying. I tried. The driver of the Hefe is a slave of the innkeep's cousin who owns them. Uh, it was, and I love this kind of just this little look at what some of the slaves look like. It was easy enough to tell one from the other. The slaves were all tattooed. A mask of blue feathers, a lightning bolt that ran from jaw to brow, a coin upon the cheek, a leopard spots, a skull, a jug. I think it's just some really interesting exposition on slaves and on kind of the culture and just see putting the picture in your head. Mm-hmm. Especially because, like, we're not going to get to these chapters for a long time, but it sets the stage for when Tyrion and crew do see Volantis. And you also get the sense that Volantis is designed not to cater to tourists because, again, Quentin almost gets robbed and murdered. But they know a lot of people are coming through town who are not familiar maybe with the area or haven't been through. So it's the, the, the slaves are it's, – it's designed to be able to tell one slave from the other because they want newcomers and visitors to town to know who to talk to for a given thing mm-hmm. and know, who to, know who's legit. Uh, so I, I think you get the sense of – Volantis is kind of a hub for the region in that regard. Yeah, but it also gives you a sense of that normalized cruelty, which is, mm-hmm. of course, bolstered by people being like, oh, why do you want to go to Marine? It's not like there are any slaves. So it shows how Volantis, despite some of the other, you know, stands in big contrast to Bravos. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's the exact opposite of Bravos for sure. Quentin thinks on all the people that he's lost along the journey. There was Maester Kedri, who said there were five slaves for every free man in Volantis, though he had not lived long enough to verify his estimate. Damn. He had perished on the morning the Corsairs swarmed aboard the Meadowlark. Quentin lost two other friends that same day, William Wells with his freckles and his crooked teeth, fearless with a lance, and Cletus Ironwood, handsome despite his lazy eye, always randy, always laughing. Cletus had been Quentin's dearest friend for half his life, a brother in all but blood. Give your bride a kiss for me, Cletus had whispered to him just before he died. Totally, Robert. (laughs) Yeah, is this it? Yeah, that's like... Robert would be like, say that and then go, best line ever, and then die. Yeah, pretty much. Oh my god, what if that's what that, what if that's what Liana said to Ned on her, on her talking bed? Give Kat a kiss for me. Promise me, Ned. Damn. <laughs> it was not supposed to end like that for them. This will be a tale to tell our grandchildren. Cletus had declared the day they set out from his father's castle. 
which I do love. I know we're not including the rest of the quote, but mm-hmm. after that, it gets talked about that they're like, well, you know, maybe like to tell prostitutes because, you know, we don't have girlfriends or wives, any of us or kids to have grandchildren with. Not with God, but, you know. And then Cletus says the very Robert-like line of, well, if you want grandkids, got to start lifting skirts. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> I added the ha, 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 but I, I, think it's, I think it's assumed. I think it was implied, um, yeah. But yeah, I love how melodramatic that last line from Cletus is. But as melodramatic as it is, it works in terms of, again, setting up Quint's motivation, because now he can't turn back, because if he does, then his best friend died for nothing. He has to fulfill that promise and give Danny a kiss, not even because he's because he wants to for any really romantic interest in his own right, but because... Uh, he's got his best friend's ghost, much like Ned with Liana, kind of hovering over him the whole time. And of course, Maester Kedri's death hurts him the most. Uh, Maester Kedri was fluent in local languages, and he had spent half his life learning about the nine free cities. Maester Kedri dies. Two of his companions die. It's the first signs of his mission failing, but still, he must carry on. He has enough guilt now weighing on his shoulders that's propelling him along. It's a sunk cost fallacy that Quentin has already invested a lot into this and he thinks if he doesn't succeed, that investment was for nothing, which is not logically the case. If he breaks it down, Cletus is going to be dead either way and he should go home and save what lives he can. But, you know, we don't always think perfectly logically about this kind of stuff when our best friend's death is involved. So he gets that mindset where I have to keep going. Otherwise, I'm a complete failure and my best friend hates me from beyond the grave. Again, fun times. It's a fun storyline, guys. We're having fun. This is fun. This is fun. This is what fun feels like. There's also, of course, along with that sunk cost cost fallacy, there's that Ned aspect to it, right? Where Ned suddenly feels like, oh my gosh, I gotta carry out my dead sister's wishes. And for him... Cletus is like his brother. I've got to carry out my dead brother Cletus's wishes. Or how maybe Robert is saying to Ned, like, oh, put put my son or my heir on the throne. And it's like, uh, okay, I got to do this thing for you now. It's like Duran with his siblings. It's the exact same thing driving uh, Quentin's dad, which is why he sent Quentin out on his quest in the first place. You gotta make good by your dead siblings. You gotta make good by your ghosts. Yeah. Even though, as Ilaria will say, really the living matter more and the dead are gonna be dead no matter what you do. That's true. I think the moral of the story is have no friends, love no one, and nothing bad will ever happen to you. <laughs> yeah, trust yeah, no bitches. Exactly. That's, that's the lesson Stannis has taken away. If I don't have feelings, I can't get hurt, and I can just be mad by myself forever, and everything will be fine. Perfectly fine. Yeah, that's exactly what happens, too. It's hard to disagree. <laughs> Along with recounting the loss of his party, Quentin thinks once more of the difficulties in getting to Westeros. Along with no one to speak the languages fluently, none of them can sail a ship. I just have this image of like this has happened to George R. R. Martin. I'm sure this has happened to George R. R. Martin during like a D&D campaign or something like, oh, this is great. Yes. Our party has a bard, we have a wizard, we have a ranger, a fighter, we have we have a barbarian, we have like one of everything, right? All 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 these different classes. So we have someone for each of our situations and oh fuck, 
We fucked up. All of our people with like charisma and wisdom stats died. We are idiots. We should have rolled either rolled better or we should have like thought about thought this through and not just depended on like one or two people. That's I think where George is drawing inspiration for this. Yeah, totally. Like I was compared to RPGs earlier, I think that's definitely the framework uh, Martin's working with. Uh, Stephen Atwell over at Race for the Iron Throne compared it to what if uh, right after the Fellowship of the Ring set out, Gandalf and Aragorn and all the smart ones were killed in a complete random encounter with orcs permanently, like yeah. a week into the quest, and you're left and you're left with just hobbits to carry on and get things done. Yeah. That's that's basically what's happening here. The cutest of hobbits, though the sweetest, the goodest boys of hobbits, besides Jairus. Fuck Jairus. Yeah. Oh my God. True. Jairus is like if Jairus is like if Merry and Pippin were complete assholes instead of just rambunctious scamps. And one person. Jairus is like if a fucking Nazgul was actually part of the party. Okay, that's how I feel about Jairus. <laughs> I agree. Jairus is Jairus is two hobbits standing on the, on each other's shoulders. That's what he is. If he pull his cloak away, it's just two hobbits. Oh my God. Don't insult the hobbits like that. Christ. Most hobbits aren't that mean. Yeah. The sackful Bagginses. Where is he the Smeagol? Okay. Oh man, exactly. Yeah. Because like, despite despite everything that's happened, despite like, oh, three, two of our friends have died, also our maester, Quentin suddenly, like not suddenly, but he like realizes that Jairus still isn't taking anything seriously. He's like, this is all a game to him, despite the losses and I mean, A, this is because Jairus is the worst. But also it shows us that, like, Quentin is more grounded than Jairus, even though Quentin's not incredibly grounded himself because he's still living his life as, like, I'm the hero, this is the story, and he doesn't realize that, oh, maybe the stakes also include him? I don't know. But... It's the equivalent of Sansa trying to tell Arya, you're such a child, I'm being reasonable and practical by wanting to go have lemon cakes with the queen. Even though Sansa is, of course, herself locked up in her own kind of dreams and, and naivete. It's just a different version from Arya's, and I think it's the same thing here. Quentin Drink are naive, and they're, they're shallow in different ways. Quentin weighs the demon road as too slow for their travel, fearing Tywin Lannister's knives on the way. And as we pointed out in our Bears in the Winds of Winter episode, there is this element of time and delayed news that creates great dramatic irony when it comes to the SOC chapters, like... Barristan not knowing that Joffrey is dead, uh, or Quentin not knowing that Tywin Lannister has been killed. Exactly. Regarding Tywin, and I'm going to just quote uh, Taylor Swift's Look What You Made Me Do. And, you know, Quentin and his friends, they're fearing Tywin Lannister's eyes, but it's all like, I'm sorry, the old Tywin can't come to the phone right now. Why? Oh, because he's dead. I'm really proud of this moment. That sounds like a that sounds like a drunk voicemail Cersei would leave. I mean, oh my god, it does. That's how the song works. That's exactly what it's like in the song. Drunk Cersei voicemails. That's all I want now. Oh my god. That's the new podcast, guys. Look what you made me do is a Cersei song. Think about it. It's such a Cersei song. It's also a there's a video, you'll, if you haven't watched it, you have to check it out, but it's Arya and Sansa, and it's to that song, and it's with Littlefinger for the plot from season seven. And I like it's better than, that. It's better than the actual plot of season seven, so. I think you sent me that. Yes, probably. I said it to everyone last night, I made my mom watch it, so. 
It's pretty glorious, I recommend. Quentin thinks of why, despite how much of a hassle this journey is, he can't turn tail. Crawl back to Sunspear defeated with my tail between my legs? His father's disappointment would be more than Quentin could bear, and the scorn of the Sand Snakes would be withering. Doran Martell had put the fate of Dorne into his hands, so he could not fail him, not whilst life remained. Wow. Womp womp. womp. Not whilst life remained. About oh. that. And then it didn't. About that. As we've mentioned before, Emmett here has written a seven-part essay series <laughs> called <Nerd>. Men's... Who <laughs> would do such a thing? <laughs> Men's Lives Have Meaning. And Emmett, you talk about this like meta-commentary that A Song of Ice and Fire is making on storytelling and this idea of like who is a hero in the story and who isn't, but I, I'm i just going to like throw out an idea, kind of based on this quote, like, is the story passing judgment on Quentin and maybe the idea of like what a hero is in terms of their values and goals, that price of heroism, like for N- Azora High, the price was Nisa Nisa, and like that price is real high, and it's a terrible, really messed up price that uh, Lucifer means Lightbringer points out LML whom you've had on your cast a few times like I don't know John Danny and Sam since I brought up Sam earlier like they're facing their own worst fears in a lot of different ways they are doing the hardest things that they can do for who they are and they also have really valiant goals like peace or saving the world whereas I don't know, perhaps the story is telling Quentin, like, you weren't made of the same stuff, like, your life might have had meaning, but you didn't aspire to heroism, and, like, that's okay, but you can't half-ass it. If you wanted to, like, go home and just chill at home, you should, like, chill at home. Like, Quentin lost his friends, and, like, adventure sucks, and his journey's really hard and stuff, but he isn't actually facing his worst fear, which is, in fact, disappointing his father. Whereas if you contrast that with Sam, like, he's going to... go do the thing that's going to disappoint his father most and have to face his abusive father, which is, like, becoming a maester. Like, that's the hardest thing that Sam can do for his character. And while he's going somewhere relatively safe, he's confronting that demon and going somewhere very dangerous emotionally, whereas Quentin is in some ways running from it. He's not facing his dad. And, you know, his goals are getting back to that cushy life and not failing his dad. Like, as you pointed out, that... Quentin points out to Danny, like, oh, let me let me show you, like, these nice-ass gardens back home. And she's like, oh, we do not, honey, we do not want the same things. And so, like, in a strange twist, like, facing dragons might not be the most difficult or emotional and maybe narrative choice that Quentin could have made personally. And so this story maybe told him that, like, you know, if you thought you were a hero, then, like, this is what you gotta pay. This is the price of being a hero. It's a thought. Absolutely. I think there's a commentary running through Quentin's storyline that the hero's journey as it's captured in songs and universe and in, you know, the copies of Joseph Campbell in terms of fiction, that it doesn't prepare the reader or the hero to deal with failure. Not just obstacles, not just things you got to get around or rise above, but utter abject failure. That this, That Quentin has not been prepared to deal with it. And that if he was able to deal with it, he'd be able to go back to a life that's actually better than being a hero. I mean, so much of what this story is about is that the day-to-day logistics of being a hero on an adventure quest is is terrible. That you you lose companions and you get new ones and they're horrible murderous people, but you don't feel good about lying to them either. And it's just... 
you know, Quentin wanting to go home at a certain point kind of reveals that that's that's not the cowardly choice. That that would actually be, like you're saying, the brave choice. That, you know, em- embracing the life you actually want to live and the life you could be good at, even if it's not something that gets you mentioned in the history books, that's the... That's the courageous thing to do, and that's the, that's for the ultimately for the greater good. You could, it's not an exact comparison, but Maester Aemon giving up the crown to have a kind of the simple life of serving as a maester and serving in the Night's Watch. That he was able to make that choice, and well, I don't think Quentin is like ambitious or greedy in the way of someone like Littlefinger. He does have he doesn't have the that he doesn't have the true steel. I guess is what I'm saying. He doesn't have the kind of moral core of a lot of the more prominent characters who have make mistakes but have a guiding compass and Quentin is Quentin kind of realizes throughout the his chapters I think that he doesn't and that he's kind of unmoored yeah Quentin didn't do this in mind with he was going to be a great king that's not what he wanted he thinks the whole time on how he wants to go home and kiss an ironwood girl and spend time with his friends and even starts thinking about maybe I want the water gardens you know to see all those kids just fucking playing and not burning and not dying horribly or anything. And I don't know. I, I also advise there's a piece that uh, Emmett Porquentin here wrote about young Griff and how his story is kind of crafted as the made to be meant to be prince, which I think the meant to be prince and meant to be hero stories definitely have some value and parallels and a little crossover. The young Griff and the, the Quentin stories absolutely are conversing with one another. I just... Yeah, manufactured at the same time in the books, you know, that they come up. I mean, maybe Quentin's making some of the same mistakes as Doran. Oh, yeah, I think so for sure. Time is a wheel. Exactly. We're all just with the Tyrion line about, you know, puppets dancing on the strings of the people who came before us. Mm. And uh, I think of the right after Davos rescues Edric Storm, right before he confronts Stannis about it, he thinks to himself that if he survives, he's going to go home to Maria and raise the kids they have left and think no more of kings, which feels very much to me similar to Quentin's desire to go home. And just, you know, yeah, you can almost hear the corny guitar playing in the background when he's talking about just marrying a girl and settling down and raising kids. It's very cheesy, but it works in context with how horrific his adventure has gotten that, mm-hmm. you know, the the life that it might have seemed corny or obvious to him is, has now become the only thing he's holding on to. Like, he wants a hall to die in and men to bury me. Barristan rejects that romantically. Mm-hmm. But that's actually what Quentin ends up wanting. And of course, we get a lot of characterization of Quentin by contrasting him with his companions. But we actually finally get a little chance to get to know him. Uh, there's a line about sex workers that really shows us that girls make him anxious when they're down at the port. And of course, there's that line above that we talked about where the sand snakes would be withering to him and that he's just not comfortable with women and i'm sure that Ariane and the sand snakes bullied him and teased him mercilessly as a kid and i'm sure that's probably what stems mm-hmm. almost all of these insecurities yeah looking at the sand snakes especially there there's i could see them teasing quint pretty mercilessly um it's not that hard so yeah again especially given that divide in the family mm-hmm. i would not be surprised i definitely yeah i definitely agree and think that's a role in there when Quentin was being fostered at House Ironwood, he had a crush on Enos Ironwood for a while, back when he was being fostered, and she also has a great name with a very unique spelling, until she was married off, 
And he also had, was like kinda into maybe the Ironwood twins a little too. And one of them gave him a kiss, but he actually doesn't know which one it was, which is hilarious, tragic, and sounds like the start of like a harem anime. But <laughs> <laughs> and you know, even though as Prince of Dorne, it, you know, he could take a, one as a paramour, but he decides himself, he comes up with all of these reasons why, no, they can't be a, one of my paramours. We don't see what any of them are, so I assume he's just, like, making things up for himself as to, like, what? No, absolutely not. Me? Me? Have a paramour? Which is a complete contrast to Arianne, who's like, oh, yes, everyone. I fuck. Right now. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, all my paramours. Yeah, par- yeah, more, more. She puts the more in here, or they us. put the more exactly. in her. I don't... Yeah, like, get it. She's very like, sex positive. Exactly. Get it, girl. But also, you know, get it, boy. Get it, Quentin. Everybody get- go get it. But don't yeah, get Dorn, it. Yeah, Dorn, you should be fucking. Exactly. But, like, wait for Gwyneth Ironwood. She's only 12. I know she has a crush on you, but, you know, chill. Uh, and... It also makes me think that, like, Quentin is all like, oh, my forehead's too high, my jaw's too square, but I'm like, is this another one of those, like, Sam effects where, like, Sam's like, oh, no, I'm so big and things are so hard for me, but, like, he things are getting easier for him physically, but it's just internally ingrained and maybe he's not as physically unattractive as they make him out to be, and even if he's, like, not... A 10 out of 10, he has this beautiful, like, heart of gold that makes up for not being, like, muscled like a maiden's fantasy, and he's just the kind of boy that you, you want to bake pastries for, you know? You want to just go home and, like, cuddle. He, he's he's the boy you want to cuddle with. And and bang. You know? Not Jairus. Nobody wants Jairus. Jairus is like a... You don't want that boy in your house. Okay? Don't take him. No, and, like... Think of what a good big spoon Quentin Martell probably Absolutely. is. Absolutely, he can be little spoon too. I'm not gonna judge. Yeah, he's a switch. Yeah, when yeah, he comes to spooning, mo- you know we can switch off with spooning. Yeah, absolutely. It's 2018 feminism. Yeah, and Dorn, you know. Yeah, you know, it's Dorn. Yeah. Dorn spoons both ways. This is true. Any commentary, Emmett? Do you have anything to add? Yeah. There? Would Would you spoon with Quentin? Just thinking of the Sam line where he, he says to the other recruits in the Night's Watch yard, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be like I am. I feel like that's, that's again, the sentiment coming from Quentin here. He's just like, I don't, I'm sorry, I'll just go. I'll just leave. Same. I feel you, Quentin and Sam. I feel you. Quentin gives himself a pep talk about how Danny's totally going to want to marry him. But it's like, he's all, I don't know. I don't know what she wants. How am I going to convince her to marry me? I don't have any ponies. I don't know anything about her. It's like Tinder on hard mode. Bring her a small elephant. A small Emmet fin. True. Oh, yes. If you if you just if you showed up with a pack of elephants, that would probably win a lady's heart. Yeah. Worked for, worked for Aladdin. Yeah, I'd be impressed. Oh, that's true. It did. Pretty sure that's exactly what happened in Aladdin. <laughs> I will be accepting no further questions. Quentin thinks to himself, slaves are everywhere, as numerous as roaches, scurrying about their master's business. And I maybe this is probably George writing it, but if it is Quentin's interiority, step one to getting the girl that is Danny, you know, the one who's getting rid of all the slavery, try not comparing the slaves to roaches, and maybe it'll be good. Just throwing that out there. Yeah, maybe not use Nazi language to describe the slave. That's probably, exactly. that's probably a good move. 
I'm sure he desperately covered up our tongue. No, no, roaches like with weed. I'm cool, Danny. I swear it. <laughs> oh my god. Poor Quinn gets You out. know, blunts, he'd say. He's like, oh yeah, puff the puff the magic dragon. You're you're into that, right? Ah! That sure was a song from the '60s. He says as everyone just quietly turns away and goes, "No, no, 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 stop." It's not what it's about, Quentin. It's not. It's not what we do. <laughs> Shave page is whispering. That's not what we do. That's not what Marina's about. <laughs> we do get a good amount of exposition on the page about Volantis, but thankfully we brought an expert in Volantis on the podcast today. Yeah, you don't have to give us all your paid content. Just give us like I don't know. Not paid content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Volantis is just super sleazy. Like, I love the line Quentin uses, describes it rich and ripe and rotted like a warm, wet kiss. Ew. It's just gross. Like, you can feel, like, the sweat on your neck, and it's, like, it's too crowded, and everyone's Moist. trying to rip you off. Which fits his quest, like, that he's feeling cynical about everything, and everyone's dying around him. Like, it fits that it's not doesn't feel like a Disney kingdom or something. It, it's, it feels like a very dangerous place that he doesn't understand uh and he yeah talks about just like spreading over the river and the sun's too bright and uh yeah i love that little detail that you mentioned about like they they just happened to meet someone who you know oh my cousin owns this uh owns this cart in this inn you know pay me double what it's worth like everyone's just kind of working together to screw them over so yeah i I like that aspect of the setting and that kind of continues later in quentin's storyline when uh, the windblown. They join. He joins them under false pretenses, but then later the, it's revealed that the windblown like stiffed them on the pay anyway. So everyone's just screwing everyone else over all the time. That's just Volantis to the core. Is it New York? Is Volantis New York? It's like cliche seventies, like people selling watches in trench coats, New York. This, just a city full of assholes. That would have been the best job for me, honestly. <laughs> selling watches in tre- a trench coat. You guys want a like deal? <laughs> Classic seedy Times Square black market person. That, that, that fits. Because this is now New York, we've decided there is busking. Like, oh wow, look at this show that Quentin has found of one dwarf on a dog and another dwarf on our pig. And oh my god, is that our friends? Um, Penny and Pretty are my friends. You can keep Tyrion and Jorah. You can just keep them. Oh, they're... Yeah. Do I have to? Yes. <laughs> I don't want him. Uh, why not just go get Lothar Brune? He's right there. Agreed. Uh, He's always just sitting there. I mean, yeah. You keep Tyrion and Jorah, and like, let's bring bring back Groat. Let's bring back yes. Oppo. You know. Groat. <laughs> I am Groat. I am Groat. <laughs> he would say that all the time, and Penny would be like, "OMG, stop! Stop saying that. We're around people." Well, and it's crazy to think of that eventually from when he sees them here, we do know that Penny does get to Marine after mm-hmm. this. Yeah, so it wouldn't have been like the worst. They they joke about like, oh, Juris is all like, do we do you want to watch this dwarf show? And Quentin's like, uh, no, we got places to be. I'm trying to get shit done. So. I know, like Quentin's like, my hands are covered with my best friend's blood. No, I do not want to watch the show. <laughs> no, thank you. Like, do you really think I want to go to the show tonight? No, I do not. I'm in no mood for a concert. It's also kind of a characterization thing, right? Because the last person that we saw who was, like, really into a dwarf show was Joffrey. 
and true good point jairus is the worst he is the worst so does that mean that jairus is joffrey yeah a nazgul yeah you got the j sound i think we i think we found ourselves a true j sound he's pretty with blonde hairs oh my god tall just saying joff parallels i think that's yeah i think that's an intentional thing barristan thinks he's a dick he is a dick I would say at least the bit True. that he's comely is very intentional of, you know, like, all that glitters is not gold. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, young Griff has the same uh, same setup there for sure. So yeah. I agree. They then go to the merchant's house where they see the wind blown. And they have this really hot and cold join the army conscription scene with, like, like <laughs> with songs. They have songs. Who... Does anyone want to try and sing this song? Emmett, I think you're going to have to. Yeah, you have to do it. It's you. We- exactly, to the tune of Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, yeah. We are the windblown. Blow a cease to Slaver's Bay. We'll kill the Butcher King and fuck the Dragon Queen. Who wrote this? You could do it this? Oompa Loompa style. <laughs> I know, There's right? no meter. Rhyme. There's no meter. <laughs> it's, it's just horrid. I know, but I like it. Yeah, all of a sudden, it's like there's like giant Uncle Sam posters, but like his teeth are covered in blood, and he's punching people to death. That's the windblown. Yeah, it's a little rough. They're a, char- they're a charming bunch. They're a little rough, dude. A little rough around the edges. It's like that scene in. I was thinking across the universe. Across oh, the universe. Okay. Remember that that scene? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the uh, during I want you. Yes. Yes. So heavy. <laughs> exactly. What yeah. were you thinking, Emmett? The windblown are like if the bloody mummers were competent. That's what the windblown are. Oh. If the bloody mummers weren't just such a joke. That's true. Uh, and were able to like function as an institution, that's who they are. They're just as horrible, but the tattered prince actually seems to know what he's doing, which makes him considerably more frightening than Vargo Hote. Mm-hmm. That's true. But yeah, not songwriters. They need better. They need better bards. Better bards for the windblown 2018. Apparently this entire story, this entire story just needs better bards. All of Quentin's storyline. That's the lesson. That's it. That's the, that's the lesson. Yeah. Yep. We're not even going to do the rest of this POV series because that's yeah, we're done. the takeaway. I quit the podcast. It's just going to be Anyway, Here's Wonderwall by the windblown. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Here's the windblown. Oh anyway, Here's the windblown. <laughs> Quentin tells Archibald that they've found a smuggler that's going to take them to Marine, but he seems super shady, so like if you have other if you have other options. Archibald says, we should just take the demon road, man. Like, what's so bad? It's just called the demon road. How bad can it be? I, I want someone to say, I want someone to say, no, the name is very misleading. It's not really a road. And if Daenerys is dead before we reach her, Quentin said, we must have a ship, even if it is adventure. Jairus laughed. You must be more desperate for Daenerys than I knew if you'd endure that stench for months on end. After three days, I'd be begging them to murder me. No, my prince, I pray you, not adventure. Not adventure. Drink, no. Three days, which is exactly what it took for him to die before, you know, he was resurrected. Yeah, that's not the some of the bluntest Jesus stuff Martin ever brought into it. I love it. Oh, yeah, I love the foreshadowing. I love it. Yeah, there's some other brutal foreshadowing when the windblown are making their sales pitch. And they're saying, come on, you and go come die in battle. Do you want to die a bed? Which, of course, is exactly 
where Quentin will die because he goes with them. Yeah, he gets his juices all over her bed. Oh my god. Delicious Quint juices. Oh, it pairs well with Jojen paste. Like like a drizzling of one and a reduction of the other, we could get like a vinaigrette going. Yeah, it's kind of like a Quentin Jojen meze board or like a, you know? Oh my god. If there's going to be food porn, it should at least be horrifying. It's true. Sounds it's delicious. True. Just drink water is like, oh, but everyone, I have a great idea. It's not honorable, though. And they have shitty frat songs because, of course, Jairus Drinkwater is the one who says, we're going to get to Marine by joining this shitty fraternity. That's him. <sighs> I know, That's right? That's Jairus. I mean, to be fair, they're lucky that they did when they did. Yeah, that's true. So that's the first chapter. That's it. That is The Merchant's Man. And uh, it, it tends to be discussed, and this goes for the rest of Quentin's storyline, it tends to be discussed as deconstruction of like fairy tale-ish fantasy, which is very obvious with, of course, the naming of the ship Adventure, Quentin talking like, you know, this was not supposed to happen to them. Well, you know, where's that supposed to come from? It, it comes from him reading stories, and he knows what's supposed to happen. So that's that's all very clear, and it's it's that's great stuff, and I think it pays off really well, uh, as you mentioned earlier, when it comes up again in The Dragon Tamer. But uh, something I don't see discussed as much is Quentin's story as a war story. Uh, it's, it's kind of subtext in this chapter. It becomes much more prominent when you get to the Windblown and he's actually fighting in a war and he's joined the Windblown as mercenaries and that becomes kind of the focus of the, the imagery and the horror. But it's, it's under the surface here too and I think you can... Uh, Martin has talked a lot about his you know, anti-war politics in particular, his uh, illuminating kind of perspective on Vietnam when he was younger. And I think you can definitely see the influence of uh, Vietnam War, both first-hand accounts from American soldiers and fictionalized accounts of uh, the experience of American soldiers in that war on Quentin's storyline. Like, even in this chapter, it, it does feel kind of like a, a diary of an American GI it, it, in Hanoi. Like, they've gone to this eastern city that they don't understand. Uh, they're just totally without leadership, or they don't know how to, who to trust, how to operate, so of course they're easy marks and there are people trying to take advantage of them. They, just like in a war, classic war story, especially a non-war story, everything immediately goes wrong and you start losing people, you start losing your leaders, uh, you, you fall in with nasty crowd, you do horrible things to innocent people, this of course happened again and again with American GIs in Vietnam. And, um, you know, this is, this is what the broken man speech looks like in execution. Not just description as we got from Septon Marable. This is what it really looks like to live this process. And you get that kind of same sense that you do in Nam stories that uh, the government and your parents, which are one and the same in Quentin's case, have teamed up to send you into hell to kill or be killed. And there's no backup plan for when things go wrong. Yeah, I never really thought about it that way with uh, the war story. It's just not something that I think about geared like that, which is, I mean, not to say I, I've given myself a lot of credit because I finally am starting to understand a lot more of the war stories. But kind of like what Eliana and I said during our Barristan episode, usually the battle stories aren't really what get us. You know, it's usually the political intrigue or, you know, up the drama. But with Quentin, you don't really you see a lot of those overarching thematics. You don't always uh, you don't always compare it to a war story, but it very much is one. It's the aspect of the war stories that I find compelling in that uh, 
for some reason, I watched Black Hawk Down at 11 years old. Don't at me. I don't know why that happened. Nice. Um, nice. Actually, I do know how that happened. That's a story. That's a Patreon-only content. No, it's not. Um, it's just not for this podcast right now. And it's that. It also feels like now that you've likened to it and contextualized it as this war story, together with that idea of the loss of innocence and the loss of the idea of adventure it also reminds me a little bit of if you've ever read world war one poetry and how at the turn of the century people had this idea of what war was and war was a completely different thing because the machines were different before world war one and there was all this romantic ideas of heroism behind it and then they're like oh this sucks they're like trenches this is the worst thing i've ever experienced and this is shitty and everyone's just sick and this is lame and everyone's dying also totally and it's you can see it uh i, I love the world war one connection like you know the the crosses on the flanders fields mm-hmm. and that kind of sorrow about losing that older romantic image of war for the more kind of modern industrial machine and obviously, Martin was writing A Dance with Dragons in the wake of the American invasion and occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan, mm-hmm. which you, I think you can see influencing his writing on A Dance with Dragons in a number of ways. Uh, but, as, but in terms of here, it's that kind of anger and hopelessness of getting stuck in a quagmire uh, that there's no way out of. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin has compared, I think he's explicitly compared the dragons to nuclear weapons before uh, in terms of how they're handled, to, or the WMDs just in general. Um, and so you can see Quentin's story as a story about like a, a younger generation being sacrificed to the bomb and to the century of American wars and kind of everything that goes with it. I think you can see that informing, uh, forming it in the background, not as explicitly something like the Broken Man speech, but I think it's, it's I think it's there in the background as a subtext. And for me, that's part of what makes the uh, Duran is secretly an eleventh dimensional chess master who has a whole other plan underneath mm-hmm. this plan. He's going to reveal on it. Like that's, I, those plans irritate me for a number of reasons, but this is one of the reasons why. Because so many of those theories are built on the assumption that it, it can't just be that the plan is bad. It's not narratively satisfying if Duran's plan is just stupid. Well, if, look at Nam. Look at Iraq. Sometimes the plan really is just stupid, and it gets your kid killed before you know after he kills other kids and. That can that can certainly be kind of overly grimdark or blunt in execution, and I think that's a fair critique of Quentin's storyline, but I think the overall point, you can see it clearly already in this chapter, is that it's a story about what you do when the strategy fails and when you're stuck in a corner. Uh, and I think, I, th- I, I sincerely hope that Martin does not have a ha-ha master plan reveal underneath this, because I think that would cheapen a lot of what's going on here. And I don't think it's possible for him to have a master reveal because this was his master reveal. You know, I mean, exactly. I think people exactly. are craving that more. You know, they want the more. They want another plan. They're like, oh, he's going to, Doran's going to do something. But this is it. It's too little, too late. Doran's revenge has come too little, too late. And we are watching the effects of that across the pages. We're watching Ariane in her plots and her schemes not exactly succeed. We're seeing Quentin on this that he, uh, doesn't obviously succeed in the end. Uh, not to roast him, but yeah. As I mean, as you said, it half-assing it, and he doesn't end up. He gets none of the things he wants. Like he, his kids die. Everybody's gonna die. I'm gonna die. You're gonna die. 
Everyone dies, leaving him all alone. Yeah. yeah. All he has are just the rotten oranges and dead kids in the garden. Even by the standards of the first three books, Feast and Dance are really mean in a way where I love them. I love them the most, but I get that putting people off, even for a pretty dark series. There's, there's a kind of mean-spiritedness to some of the stuff that happens with the Martells uh, that I can understand not everyone is into. Yeah. I mean, and Doran has... That's the difficulty of it, right? Doran has good, somewhat good intentions. The problem is, yeah, like, Quentin, he half-asses it, and he just wants to stay at home at the Water Gardens, but then he feels, again, beholden to those dead siblings and having to see this thing through. True. I mean, Quentin himself really never thinks about uh, Ilya and her children. That's really... Which is an in- interesting, like, just how he thinks, doesn't think of Ariane. Which is interesting that for as important as it is to Duran, and deservedly so, it's it's an indication that not everything is the Brackens and the Blackwoods. Like, not everything necessarily persists generation by generation mm-hmm. unless you force it to. And it's, on one hand, it's really sad that Quentin never actually thinks about the ostensible reason for all this. But it's also kind of like, oh, that so there could have been peace. Like... Quentin and Ariane don't necessarily hate the Lannisters. Like, you could have actually worked this out, but now you can't. And that makes it a little worse, right, when Quentin dies, because it's not for that intergenerational drama. And I don't necessarily know that that would make it more noble, but he's just trying to do it because he wants Dad to pat him on the back. And this absolutely happens. There are, in fact, I guess, military families or families where pe- the children are sort of pushed into being or feel that they have to join the military in order to live up to parents' standards. Is that a two-pointed thing to say? I don't know. but No, I think that's perfectly fair. Um, again, if you think about Quint being drafted, I think that puts kind of a different angle on his story than, than it would otherwise. And I think there is definitely some connection there. Do you see if Quentin is being drafted? Yeah, in a way, he's being drafted especially to fight someone else's war. It's not mm. his war. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah. This is his father's war, not his. He was born He was born in 282, like probably just as Robert's Rebellion was kicking off, which is yeah. kind of interesting that he's being asked to resolve the tensions from that. But by very but by definition, he can't remember any of it. Even Ariane has a vague memory of holding uh, Rhaenys, but Quent doesn't even have that. It's all abstract to him. This is all a story. I also think that's interesting with the Martells that, like, Ariane and Quentin are older. They're not just young 13-year-olds that we meet. And it plays into that idea of, like, the younger kids like Bran and Sansa and Arya and, you know, them inheriting the world, basically. And how some of the characters that we get, like Ariane and Quentin, obviously are not going to inherit the world yeah, that's interesting. Them and Tyrion are kind of in between generate generate. Jeez, I can't speak. In terms of generations, uh, the, the characters in their late teens, uh, mid twenties, they they seem to be in a somewhat different position than the characters like John and Danny and the younger Starklings. There's also because Quentin hasn't grown up at Sunspear and in the Water Gardens along with the other Martells. You also end up. Is he frozen again? Uh, you also end up with a difference in motivation from the other Martells. Like, even though this isn't 
the war, the same war that the Sand Snakes and Ariane grew up in, it has become their war because they were there for when Oberyn was a part of their lives and Oberyn has just died. So they now also have that motivation for vengeance that wouldn't be motivating Quentin. Going back to what you said about how this isn't Quentin's war, there's also a lot of things that are at play here with because Quentin grew up with the Ironwoods and he's been across the narrow sea. So as you said, he doesn't feel any personal motivation for it because he wasn't born during that time. And I don't think it's just because Arianne held Rhaenys. It's because she grew up together with the Sand Snakes with Oberyn Martell being a sure. large part of her life. So before this war might not have been personal for her, but the death of Oberyn has created a more personal connection and desire for vengeance amongst the younger generation in Dorne, and you can feel that tension rising in Dorne now, because a lot of the Dornish are upset that Dorne Martell has not been taking action, whereas Quentin has been so far removed from all of that. Oh, yeah. I think that's a great point, absolutely. Yeah, I think Honestly, I think that more than covers it. We honestly, this is going to be a very short point of view. We uh, only have a couple weeks to go over this. So we'll be done with Quentin before you can say, oh. Uh, oh. <laughs> got him. <laughs> got him. Emmett, tell us again where we can find you on the internet. You can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.tumblr.com. Or as part of the Not A Cast podcast, at Not A Cast A-S-O-I-A-F on Twitter. Our email is Not A Cast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find us on Podbean, SoundCloud, and iTunes, or Patreon.com, Not A Cast A-S-O-I-A-F. Excellent. Thank you again for coming on with us. And, of course, as usual, you can find us on Podbean, on Acast, on Stitcher, on iTunes, and on Google Play. And you can also send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. And of course, if you have enjoyed this, you know, keep following us on social media. We're also always saying goofy stuff there. And of course, there is a giveaway going on right now for the Fire and Suds bath bombs. So follow us on Twitter. Go retweet that tweet if you would like some bath bombs. And yeah, we're on Twitter. <laughs> <Send us a name. laughs> we're on twitter guys uh thanks and thanks so much for also joining us today Emmett. thank you for having me on and i've been eliana also known as glass table girl on the maester monthly podcast or on the song of ice and fire subreddit and I've been Chloe. You can find me on Twitter and Tumblr as at Lies and Arbor. And you can also find me at Drunk, A Song of Ice and Fire History. Thanks so much, you guys. Tune in next week for our next Quentin episode.